Okay, we're um, carrying on with a, a study through the Gospel of John, particularly what we call the Upper Room Discourse. The Gospel of John is divided into effectively two major sections. There's chapters 1 through 11, which really cover a period of about three and a half years. They cover the duration of Jesus' ministry. We then find that we've got chapters 12 through 21 that cover one week. It's a huge contrast. Uh, It's the most important week in human history. It's the week some people refer to as Passion Week. Um, But it's the last week uh, that Jesus spent leading up to the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection. And John focuses basically half of his gospel on the details of this week. It's so important. Chapter 12, we find we have the triumphal entry as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecies of Zechariah and also of Daniel. Uh, Incredible fulfillment of those prophecies. And then chapters 13 through 17, we have what is referred to by uh, commentators and scholars as the Upper Room Discourse. Basically, it's the longest recorded discourse in the New Testament. That's the longest recorded speech, if you like, that Jesus gives um, that's recorded for us in the New Testament. It begins in the Upper Room and it ends en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you like, it's a, a masterclass in discipleship. Okay, this is the, the final opportunity Jesus has before the cross to really lay things out for the disciples so they understand just what they're getting involved in. They've been three and a half years with Jesus, but all of a sudden things are starting to get a little bit different for them. And really, if you are to be a disciple of Jesus, if that's what you have chosen, that's what you want to do, then these are the terms, really, that we're going to see laid out for us. There's, if you like, four lessons that kind of come out. The first two are recorded in in these chapters we're looking at, or the chapters 13 through 17. Um, There's an additional lesson that Jesus basically says the Holy Spirit uh, is going to be teaching. Um, But there's also a lesson they learn from experience. We'll comment on that uh, a little later as well. But before Jesus really gets into the, um, the teaching sessions, if you like, there's some prerequisites that are laid down. The first of those is this giving up the right to yourself, uh, being, as it were, a kind of a servant. Oswald Chambers makes a comment, he says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. And that's obviously not Oswald Chambers, that was Jesus said that, Matthew 16, 24. Oswald Chambers comments, he says, The surrender here is of myself to Jesus, myself with his rest at the heart of it. If you would be my disciple, give up your right to yourself, to me. A lot of us are justified in the feelings and hurts we have and the emotions we have. And, you know, but why should I do that? Or this is, you know, we may be absolutely justified. That's not the point. The point is, are we prepared to let go of all of those things that we claim as our right and give that over to Jesus? Oswald Chambers continues, he says, then the remainder of the life, if we do give that, our, ourselves over to God completely, then the remainder of the life is nothing but the manifestation of this surrender. When once the surrender has taken place, we need never suppose anything. We do not need to care what our circumstances are. Jesus is amply sufficient. Do you believe that Jesus is in control of your circumstances? You know, I've gone through some experiences this year and I've shared some of those with you earlier in the year. And Jesus really challenged me on that. Do you trust him with the circumstances you're in? So the first prerequisite, if you like, is, is that giving up the right to yourself. The second one is servanthood itself. And again, this is just a prerequisite. This is before we actually really get into the, the teaching. In um, Luke 22, Luke account recalls there the, the situation that leads to the washing of the disciples' feet. 
And that's what comes out in John 13 as well. Uh, Luke just says there, uh, picking up verse 24, he says, And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest? And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that does serve. It's kind of a a principle that we all know, but is that the way we live our lives? Do we seek to serve others? Do we have a servant's heart? The real benchmark is given to us in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where we read, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's to say that although he was God, he didn't want to claim that, you know, as God, why should he come to this earth? Why should he suffer for us? He didn't claim his rights. He was willing to let that go. And he's with verse 7, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. You know, that is such a step down that we can't even begin to imagine. For us just to, to be servants and to serve each other is not really such a big thing. Verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We have a, an object lesson given to us with this washing of the feet, which is really what this uh, is drawn from, this whole idea of servanthood in, in, in this teaching that Jesus is giving his disciples. Jesus lays aside his garments. Now, we see here a picture of the gospel. This really is the gospel laid out in this one act of the washing of the disciples' feet. Um, Jesus gave up the majesty and the glory of heaven to come to this earth. And in this particular incident with the washing of the feet, he lays aside his garments, the same kind of parallel. He becomes as a servant. He, he ends up attired in just the robe or just the clothing a servant would have been wearing. Coming to those who did not recognize their need to be cleansed. Peter was like that. Peter objected, you know, Lord, you know, um, you know wash, wash all of me kind of thing. And, and Jesus is saying, no, no, just, you know, he didn't see that he needed to be cleansed. He, he was not happy that Jesus would wash his feet. He was saying, I should wash your feet. He didn't see his need to be washed by Jesus. But with the disciples in that upper room, Jesus elevates them to his position. He takes on this role of a servant, and they're sitting there, as it were, the masters, having their feet washed. And then we find that Jesus takes empty vessels, and he fills them with water. What a lovely picture. The water then cleanses the walk of all who will humble themselves. Again, Peter made this comment that, you know, not just my feet, but all of me. And Jesus says, look, you know, let, let me do this. If you don't, you'll have no part in me. We need to humble ourselves and allow Jesus to cleanse us. He's the only one that can do it. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19, Paul links this, this whole idea of servanthood with the great commission, if you like, our, our need to talk to people about our faith. Uh, and to share the gospel. He says there, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Paul is saying that I'm willingly taking on this role of a servant and willingly serving others for the sake of the gospel. So, the prerequisites are giving up the rights of ourselves and servanthood. It's interesting that it's after this that Judas leaves the room. And I think there's two reasons for that. Firstly, that Judas can't be party then to the things that are going to be dealt with next because these are going to be exclusively for the disciples of Jesus. But also I think there's a challenge here. And is that, are you ready to commit to being a disciple? You know, Judas 
wasn't prepared to do that. He had a love for the things of this world, particularly the love of money. It's interesting that in Acts chapter 5, this is after the Ananias and Sapphira incident, we read there verse 11 of Acts 5, And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest did no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. This is incredible. You know, we have this attitude in church today that if somebody comes through the doors, you know, we'll, we'll welcome them. Oh, you know, please, please, you know, make sure you come back next week. You know, we don't want to say anything to upset or offend them. We're so desperate to see people coming in. But in the early church, there was a fear. People weren't prepared just to go and join the church. They saw the power that was at work. They saw the transformation that was taking place in the, in the lives of these people. I've commented before that we, I think that the church has a, a, a wrong um, view of itself so often where we, we see ourselves as being a tool for evangelism itself. In terms of, we want to invite non-Christians into church. Well, that's not what church is for. When we meet together, if, if we look in Ephesians, we'll find that we're here to edify ourselves. It's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. So we come together so that we're trained, we're prepared, we're ready to go out into the world, which is where the ministry takes place. If we try and bring non-Christians in, in the hope they might like it, what are they going to be attracted to? Are we hoping they'll be impressed by the music or, you know, by, by, by lighting or whatever else? You know, so often, and I, over the years, I mean, years and years ago when I was a lot younger, I used to be in a band. And that was basically our emphasis. We were trying to make Christianity attractive to people. It's not going to work. We're never going to make Christianity attractive. Because if people start to look into what is required of a disciple... It's not about, oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to give this Jesus thing a go. I love the example that Ray Comfort uses uh, where you get uh, somebody on, on an aeroplane and they're told to, to put on a parachute because it's going to improve their flight. And they put this parachute on and they're sitting there and they're kind of uncomfortable and the other passengers start laughing at them. And you know, after a while they get fed up with it and they take the parachute off because it hasn't improved their flight. Well, that's what the modern gospel does. It says, you know, become a Christian because Jesus will make your life better. The following example is then that you have somebody that's on the plane that is told that any time now you're going to have to jump out of this plane and you'll be jumping a few thousand feet and if you don't have this parachute on, you'll be jumping to sure death. So that person puts the parachute on. They don't care that it's uncomfortable. They don't care that other people laugh at them. And Ray uses the example that a hostess comes along, spills some hot coffee over this person's lap. What's their reaction? Do they blame the parachute? Well, no, because they're not wearing the parachute to give them a better flight. They're wearing the parachute to save them from the jump to come. And the tribulations and trials they experience only make them hold on to this parachute even more. And they actually start to look forward to the jump. That's the way it should be for us. If we've put on the Lord Jesus Christ because we realise the eternal consequences of this, I think you understand what I'm saying. So, prerequisites again, giving up the righteous self and servanthood. And then we start to get into the teaching. Jesus then says that there's this new commandment. This isn't something they had done previously. This is new. And they are to love each other in the same way he'd love them, unconditionally. That was new to the world. And then Jesus goes on to say that they should keep his commandments and, and then adds that the Holy Spirit will actually be given to teach them. In uh, chapters 15 and 16, kind of the subject changes slightly. And we then get on to this uh, issue we were looking at last time, which is that the disciples are actually appointed to bear fruit. That is what they are to do. And they are to continually abide in Christ. 
They're told also that persecution will come. This is something, again, that is omitted from the modern gospel because we don't offend people, do we? But this is the reality. Jesus wasn't... Um, I was trying to think of a better expression, but Jesus wasn't trying to lead them into a false sense of security. In actual fact, security was never the issue here. Um, this, this is, but Jesus wasn't trying to say, you know, it's going to be great, it's going to be a lot of fun. He was saying that, actually, if you stand with me, you're going to be persecuted. But he goes on to tell them that the Holy Spirit would be given to comfort them. Now... It's interesting, we're going to look uh, at that last part, the persecution aspect, and the fact that the Holy Spirit will be given to comfort them. But both of those lessons, if you like, end with an instruction about what the Holy Spirit is to do in the life of believers. Firstly, the Holy Spirit will be here to teach us, and secondly, to comfort us. And it's quite two important things. We'll talk a bit more about the Holy Spirit as we go through this morning. And it's interesting that both our understanding and our walk are by the Spirit. If we try and do either, if we try and gain understanding of spiritual things without the Spirit, we're not going to get anywhere. And if we try and walk as a disciple without the Spirit, again, we're not going to get anywhere. Okay, so let's uh, have a look at John 16 then. And we start with verse 1. Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you. Now those things, the things we've just briefly reviewed there, these things I've spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. Jesus is saying, look, I've told you the persecution is coming. I've told you the way it is. This is the reality of it. And the reason I'm telling you is that when it happens, you won't say, well, you didn't tell us about that. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you so that you won't be offended. These things will happen. Kind of pre-warns that bearing fruit is not going to be well received by the world. Galatians 6 verse 9, Paul tells us there, let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. It's very easy to get discouraged when we are singled out, picked on uh, for our faith, when people make fun of us, when they mock us. Um, And it's very easy to try and go into our shell or even sometimes be tempted to go along with the world just to ease that pressure. But Paul is saying, you know, that don't, don't give in. You know, we're getting closer and closer and closer to the end. Very interesting thing I heard this week, um, not related to this, but just again indicates the timing, is that apparently uh, there was a meeting uh, a few months back with some rabbis and some members of the the newly formed Sanhedrin in Israel and a prominent Muslim um, cleric scholar who's known for being a little controversial. uh, And this chap was actually suggesting that they rebuild Solomon's temple. This is the Muslim suggesting it and rebuild it on the Temple Mount. Now, whether it will come to anything, don't know. But if the Jews have suggested it, obviously openly to the Muslims, Muslims would have just instantly rejected it. But the fact that a Muslim is suggesting it, uh, and he's got his reasons, is very interesting. But it just indicates how close we are. Though the comment was that if they go ahead and do it, it could be built within a year. Now, that's incredible. You know, these are the things we've read about and talked about from a prophetic standpoint, but we are getting so close. And that's why we mustn't faint. We mustn't give up. Uh, if we get persecution, and we'll talk in a moment, persecution is coming. You know, we must keep on. I love this verse. I had a, I still got a friend, uh, but I had a friend that was at Bible college. And they were going through, him and his wife were both there together uh, doing a course, and they were going through a really tough time. And I, I just went to see them, and I said, look, let me give you just a word of encouragement. And I just picked this verse, and I love this verse. It's from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was going through a really tough time. He just says, if thou hast run with a footman, and they have wearied thee, then how can thou contend with the horses? And if in the land of peace, wherein thou trusted, they wearied thee, then how will thou do, how will thou do in the swelling of Jordan? My paraphrase is, if you think this is hard. You see, 
God was saying to Jeremiah, look, you're moaning about the circumstances you're in. You see nothing yet. It's going to get much, much harder. And I said this to my friends, and they kind of looked at me, kind of, that's not really encouragement. And I said, no, it is encouragement, because what it's saying is, you know, just, you know, as um, a phrase I borrowed from Ron once, you know, just put your big boy trousers on, you know, just, just grow up. Realise that actually, we, we don't suffer anything like the people in the rest of the world suffer. You know, and really, if we have run with the footmen and they've wearied us, how are we going to contend with the horses? How are we going to contend if persecution really does Come on strong in this country. There's, there's lots we hear. But, you know, why, we get, why do we get so concerned about it? There's a children's program that I read an article about. It's on CBeebies. Um, and uh, obviously, Marla being just over to uh, watch your CBeebies sometimes. And uh, we do tend to filter the things that she watches anyway, obviously. Um, but I had this article was saying, you know, we've really got to do something about this. And I thought, well, you know, actually, we live in the world. You know, we're not going to change the world. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't stand up for things that are true, but we can waste a lot of energy fighting battles that really we're not going to win. And even if we did win, what good would it do? You know, I remember years ago, we used to write to all the shops in Deal complaining as they got near Halloween, they were putting all the Halloween merchandise in the window. And some of them actually took it out and they didn't do it for a few years. But this year, everybody's doing it. Now, what do we do about that? Do we get upset? Do we say, it's really bad? Or do we just make the most of every opportunity? You know, and, and sometimes we can get involved in fighting things that we've really got no business fighting because they're not actually going to further the gospel. Carry on, John 16, verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whoever kills you will think that he does God's service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Jesus giving a very clear warning to the disciples of what they can expect. Just as Jesus had promised, that time did come. Uh, we find that originally the religious Jews were the ones that did put them out of the synagogues and that they were trying to kill them. We know the story of um, uh, Paul, or should I say the account of Paul, um, Saul previously. From a use expression, hell-bent on persecuting and killing Christians. And that's obviously dealt with in the book of Acts. We see a lot of that. But we then find that Rome took over that baton, if you like. And Nero, we know, was uh, terrible in his persecution. Not the worst, actually, of all the Roman emperors. But he used Christians as human torches for his garden parties. Incredible persecution. We can't even relate to this kind of thing. Christians were blamed for the fire in Rome as well. And that kind of led to a greater wave of persecution. But that then led on to the persecution under the Roman Catholic Church. One pope in one afternoon martyred more Christians than all the believers killed by Rome. If you want documentation of that, I suggest you have a look at Dave Hunt's book, uh, A Woman Rides the Beast. Uh, It's incredible. Um, Some of the things that have taken place in the name of Christ. We then went on with the Roman Catholic Church. There was the inquests, uh, reformation uh, and all that. Many, many people were martyred. But more believers have been martyred in the last 100 years than in the previous 19 centuries combined. We live in an incredible age. Let me just um, share this with you. I apologise if the text is a bit small, but let me just read what it says. This is from Voice of the Martyrs. The heading is there, Camel Boy Crucified. It says, uh, Damari, a young slave boy, had his knees and feet nailed to a board and was left to die just for attending a church service. Miraculously, he survived and told the voice of the martyrs that he forgave his cruel tormentor because Jesus was nailed and forgave him. Wow. That's... What would we be like in that kind of situation? Persecution is a very, very real thing. 
We need to be aware. J. Vernon McGee made the comment um, that persecution was coming on the body of Christ. That was some time ago, quite a few years back now. But he went on to say that the source of that persecution would be from the established church. And he's right, because we're seeing it even now. Rick Warren, a name that uh, is probably familiar to many of us, uh, in an interview in a Philadelphia newspaper um, said, and before I just go on to say what he said, sometimes I get, um, people get quite cross when I, I name names. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, I believe that we should expose these things. People will often use the, um, you know, you shouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. Well, if you look in context, that means, oh, well, I'm not going to go and kill Rick Warren. That was what that was all about. But you find actually in that situation, David exposed Saul in front of the nation. You know, so I, I don't have any problem with, with naming names when it's appropriate. And this is an example that I think you, you'll see is appropriate. Uh, in this article, and it's been verified, he said that he despises a fundamentalism in the church. What does that mean? Surely fundamentals are just sticking to the basics of what we believe. That's what fundamentals are. You know, we, we've got a, a misconception very often because of the media um, spin on this word of what fundamentalism really is. But, I mean, a football referee is a fundamentalist. They stick to the rules of the game. A maths teacher is a fundamentalist. You know, somebody comes along and says, well, why can't two plus two equal five? You know, I think it's a bit intolerant to say that we always must be four. The maths teacher is going to be absolutely dogmatic and stick to the fundamentals and say, no, because... And, you know, you can look in any area of life. You know, Dave Hunt uses the examples of airplane pilots. You know, you all want to be, when you're on an airplane, on a plane that is piloted by a fundamentalist. Somebody who sticks to the rules, who knows where they're going and how they're going to get there. And, you know, he says, you, know, you don't want somebody coming on the, the tannoy saying, well, you know, we're just going to press a few buttons and see where it gets us. You know, one way is as good as another, you know. That's not the way it is. In, in every area of life, people stick to fundamentals. And why should it be any different when it comes to areas of belief? And, you know, part of our, our problem with that word is because of the, the Islamic fundamentalists. You know, the problem isn't that they're fundamentalists. That's what you should expect. If they believe something, they should stick to what they believe. The problem is their belief. And that's a separate issue. But you can't be anti-somebody because they stick to their fundamentals. That's just being consistent. And as Christians, we have to stick to the fundamentals. And what are the fundamentals? Well, ultimately, it's the word of God. That is the basis for everything we believe. The article went on to say that Warren predicts that fundamentalism of all varieties will be one of the big enemies of the 21st century. Muslim fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism, Jewish fundamentalism, secular fundamentalism, they're all motivated by fear, fear of each other, he says. That's nonsense. I don't stick to the Bible because I'm, I'm, I'm fearful of, of, of some other fundamentalist. I stick to the Bible because it's true. You know, and, and it's, I, I can verify, I can prove it's true. They are... That's the fundamentals. How can you say you despise fundamentalism in the church? Another name I shall mention, Steve Chalk. He says that teaching our children a six-day creation is child abuse. Now, this was an article that appeared in, I believe it was the Times uh, newspaper a few years back, and I actually had the opportunity to speak to Steve Chalk and ask him personally if this was what what he said, and he told me it was. Uh, He went on and we had a discussion about origins, um, obviously the creation issue, and he told me it was all Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon. That was his quote, which is interesting um, because Daniel was in Babylon and he tells us that Moses wrote it. So I'd rather go with Daniel. But, but you know, these things are coming in. And those that stick to the fundamentals of what we believe are starting to be singled out. You know, the emerging church is opposed to the truth of the gospel. And those who don't conform 
are being classed as religious fanatics, fundamentalists, you know, and labelled as dangerous. Bible seminaries and colleges, sorry, seminaries and colleges, no longer teach the Bible as truth. They encourage all views. My brother-in-law was at a Bible college, I won't mention their name, but um, he had real issues on the creation part of their, their, their study because he believed that, as God said and wrote with his own finger, that God created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them in six days. But the college said, no, no, we must allow all views. Okay, well, what about the view that God created everything, heaven and earth, and seen all that is in them in six days? Oh, no, we can't allow that view because we must allow all views. You see, what they do, they actually um, they, they discriminate against the authority of the word of God so that they can allow every other view in. And actually, it's not being open at all. It's being intolerant against the Bible being the word of God. And that's becoming more and more. Let me just, this is the, the verse that we just read a moment ago. I've just taken out the word synagogue because it doesn't apply to us. And I've replaced it with churches. See how this hits you. Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the churches. Yea, the time comes that whoever kills you will think that he does God's service. You know, that's the time we're in. People may not actually be trying to kill us yet, but they're trying to kill everything we do. They're trying to kill the things we stand for. They're trying to kill the the passion we have for God's word. Chuck Misler has a very interesting study called The Once and Future Church. Just talking about the fact that the church began in homes. You know, and it's very likely it will end there. There may well come a time that we'll be forced out of meeting in public venues. We need to be prepared for that. We need to be ready. Whether we'll see that or not, whether the Lord in his mercy will allow us to be raptured and taken back to be with him before, don't know. But we need to be aware that these things are coming. And we need to have a very solid and sure foundation to our faith. Jesus says, but these things I've told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I have told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you ask me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. See, the disciples now, they've heard this. They're starting to think about themselves and how this is going to impact them. They're not actually starting to think, where's Jesus going? You see, before we pray, give us this day, we should be praying, thy kingdom come. And so often we get that emphasis the wrong way around. It's not that Jesus is not interested in our daily bread, our natural provisions and all those things that surround our lives. But there's an order. And his kingdom should come first. Verse 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient. It's it's beneficial for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. These are the three things. Reprove the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. Now, thankfully, Jesus gives us his own commentary, so we can go with that. He says in the next verse, of sin, because they believe not on me. Now, this is particularly in regard to the Jewish leaders who'd rejected Jesus. They'd have all the evidence they needed, but they rejected him. You know, and there's people in the world today that claim that they they know. And actually in doing that, just like the, 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 the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the Jewish leaders, uh, they actually put themselves in this position in... Um, John 9.41, Jesus said, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, 
therefore your sin remains. It's the same idea. People that claim to know the answers are actually putting themselves in this position where really they're bringing judgment upon themselves because not that ignorance is going to help at all, but they can't even claim ignorance because they're claiming they do have the answers and that they then reject Jesus. The Holy Spirit will convict of sin. Of righteousness, Jesus says, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. You know, Jesus was going back to the Father after making a way for all men to be right with God, righteous. Okay, and the Holy Spirit is going to reprove people if they choose not to avail themselves of his righteousness. Okay, particularly when it came at such a great cost. Of judgment. We're told because the prince of this world is judged. You know, the Spirit will convict men of their words and deeds. Uh, you know, people do things and they know they're wrong and that they, they have their conscience which bears witness that they are guilty. They have, um, it's the, the verse from Proverbs, isn't it? That uh, the wicked flee when no man pursues. There's that knowledge that actually this is wrong or that's wrong. It's just interesting here that because the prince of this world is judged, um, so many people put their, their store in, well, you know, that if there's a God, if there's a devil, you know, we're kind of, and they're kind of trying to go this middle ground thing. But, you know, ultimately, when, when we get to the time of judgment, the devil's going to have bigger problems than worrying about the people that have pledged allegiance to him. People know in their hearts that they're in rebellion. Um, so this is what the Holy Spirit is to do. Okay, he's going to bring conviction of sin. He's going to emphasize the need for righteousness he will underline the reality of judgment, but just put a few well, he will nots here. He's not going to make people bark or do chicken impressions. He's not going to make people laugh uncontrollably. He's not going to enable us to have miracle crusades. He's not going to make us financially prosperous. And yet so often, those are the kind of things that surround this working of the Holy Spirit. We had some people that left uh, Deal Christian Fellowship some time ago. Because it wasn't spiritual enough. They felt it was spiritually dead. In truth, I think they were being convicted because the word was being taught. What they were meaning was that there weren't people falling over and there weren't people, um, it was kind of around the time of the Toronto thing, there weren't people <laughs> bursting out in laughter. But you know, self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Not losing control. We are guilty of, of so much of this... this um, modern heresy really being tagged on to the work of the Holy Spirit and we need to realise that really the, the key things are here that he'll bring conviction of sin he's going to emphasise as I say the need for righteousness you know with these, these spirit crusades all the things that go on do we ever hear about this is ever the reality of sin and the need for righteousness and the reality of eternal judgement those things are just not mentioned we also know that the Holy Spirit will lift up Jesus and the word Verse 12, Jesus says, I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. The disciples were just young in their walk with the Lord. And, you know, I've got a load of things I want to talk to Marla about, loads of things I want to share with her, but she's not ready yet. She's not old enough. There'll come a time that she will be old enough, and then it will be right and proper for me to share those things with her. Jesus here is caring for his disciples and saying, look, there's just some stuff that you can't handle yet. But... A lot of Christians will use that as an excuse for never growing spiritually. And they, they stay in this kind of uh, infancy um, side of things. Uh, you know, babes, we know, have milk, and that's right and proper, because they're not ready for solid food. 
In 1 Corinthians, though, Paul makes uh, the comment, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as to, unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are you able. Hebrews 5, we read there, For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of their uh, senses have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You know, if Marla gets to, I don't know, 18, 19 years old, and she's still wearing nappies, and she's still having her milk with mummy at bedtime, there'd be a problem. But as Christians, so many Christians stay in that same place. They never grow. They never move forward. They never get into the meat of God's word. And there clearly is a problem. If you have been in that same place throughout your Christian life and you've not been growing, there's an issue and it needs to be addressed. That passage in Hebrews goes on to say, leaving therefore the principles of the doctrine of Christ, the basic, the foundational stuff, let us go on unto perfection. Let's go on to maturity and I walk with the Lord. That's really interesting. Look, make a note of that. Hebrews 6, chapter 1, oh, sorry, verse 1. And just read on for, from the rest of that verse because it lists the things that are the basic foundational building blocks in terms of what we should understand. And I guarantee you that most Christians struggle with pretty much everything on that list. But they're the things that we should have nailed down. We should know those things so that we can go on to perfection. It's, it's a bit like this. It's a bit like having a, um, a jigsaw. I mean, the Bible actually is very much like a jigsaw. You know, the more you understand, you can start with a framework. And as you learn more of Scripture, you can start filling in and everything else. And, and some Christians spend their entire life just trying to make the picture. And they're trying to find the pieces to fit. Trying, how does this uh, bit of doctrine fit in with that bit of doctrine and everything else? And they never get to the point of actually standing back and looking at the picture. And that's what we should do in our Christian life. We should get the basic doctrinal things nailed down. We should understand the, the issues that it talks about in, in Hebrews 6.1 so that we can then look at the picture and start appreciating the beauty of what God has done and is doing with us. Back to John, John 16, verse 13, which says, How be it, so Jesus is saying, you're not ready yet for some of the things I want to share with you. He says, How be it, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. Uh, And his insightful um, passage in 1 John, we'll look at in a second. But look here, we're told that he will guide us into all truth. You know, truth without being led by the Spirit isn't truth at all. He's going to show us things to come and give us an understanding of uh, the times that we're living in as well. And significantly we're told that he shall glorify Jesus. In First John, John makes a comment there. Uh, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof... You have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. You see, one of the primary works of the Spirit was to bring people to that place of understanding that Jesus is God. And through John's Gospel, we find that reiterated time and time and time again. And 
it was one of the works of the Spirit then, it's one of the works of the Spirit through us now. Verse 15, All things that the Father has are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Verse 15 there, we've got a, a beautiful picture of the, the Godhead uh, working in unity, uh, each fulfilling their separate roles. We've got the Father giving all things to the Son, uh, and the, the, then the, the Spirit will take of the Son and reveal it to, the servant, to his servants. Verse 16, we're told, A little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Almost sounds a little bit like double talk to us. But you know, within just a matter of hours from this point, Jesus was going to be taken from the disciples. He'd be tried and crucified and buried. For the three days, three nights, he's going to be obviously away. They wouldn't see him. But then after a short time had passed, to their inexpressible joy, they would see him again. And then from that point on, there was that promise that he will be with them even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20 and Hebrews 13, 5 were told, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, that's what that verse is saying. Verse 17, then said some of his disciples among themselves, what is this that he says unto us? A little while and you shall not see me. And again, a little while and you shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They're obviously confused. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith? A little while, we cannot tell what he says. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. And he said unto them, Do you inquire among yourselves of that I said, A little while, and you shall not see me? And again, a little while, and you shall see me? And probably none of them were wanting to admit that, yeah, actually we were kind of struggling with that. Could, could you help us? And Jesus now takes eight verses, effectively, to summarize his mission and all that was going to happen from this point on. So he starts his answer, verse 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you. That's Jesus' way of trying to make sure they get that this is important. Uh, you know, we have not just verily, you're not just verily, verily, but verily, verily, I say unto you. There's really heavy emphasis on this. He says, that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Now we have the benefit of hindsight. Uh, to see this. You see, the disciples had a, a misconception, as did the Pharisees and everything else, about what Jesus' mission was all about. They thought he was coming to set up a political kingdom. They didn't understand Isaiah 53, where Jesus has to come as a suffering servant first. But that sorrow they had would be turned into life-changing joy. And it really was life-changing, because these disciples go on, all bar John, we understand, to be martyred. Interesting parallel, Romans 8.18, where Paul tells us, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. You know, we've got a time now where we may sorrow, there may be issues, but it's not going to be comparable. I mean, the joy the disciples had on that resurrection morning couldn't have been compared to the sorrow they'd experienced just a few days before. It was, it was just unbelievable. Verse 21, Jesus carries on his answer. He says, A woman when she's in travail has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she's delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man takes from you. Again, that was evidenced in the fact they gave their lives willingly. People would you know, try and get them to, to recant, to say, oh no, I don't believe in Jesus. They wouldn't do it. They knew I think it was um, Polycarp, I believe it was, a disciple of John. So the story goes, he was in his very, very old age, I think late 90s or something like that. And he'd obviously learned from John personally and he'd grown. And um, 
eventually they try to track him down. They send some Romans to his house and they find him praying. But not just praying, he'd actually prepared a meal for them. He knew they were coming to collect him. So he gets them to sit down and eat this meal first with them. And they just you know, kind of ask him the question, why, why don't you just deny this Jesus and you can go free? And he says, I can't remember the exact age, so forgive me, but I think it's you know, 90 and five years I've lived and he's never denied me. I'm not going to deny him now. You know, that's the difference. That's that joy that no man can take from you. It's like that character Damery that we looked at earlier. Whatever the situations, he had a joy that couldn't be taken from him. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now Jesus hints at this relationship change that's about to take place after his resurrection. See, many of their questions will have been answered. And they're not going to need to ask Jesus the hows and the why questions. They'll have those then. But they're going to enter into this relationship with the Father that only Jesus had enjoyed up until that time. Jesus would tear the veil, making a way into the holy place. And all believers now have access, direct access to the Father. And Jesus had already told the disciples that they were not servants, but friends. And as his friends, he grants them the liberty to ask anything and to put it on his account. What an incredible privilege we have. Verse 24, Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. See, up until that point, the disciples have prayed, but they're not prayed in Jesus' name. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time comes when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. And that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. This is easy to read over and not see the magnitude of it. But this privilege that is being given to the disciples, and obviously now to us, that we can pray and we can go directly to the Father. It's, just, it's incredible that we have the privilege, and we as sinful people can go directly to the throne of God, the creator of the universe, because of what Jesus accomplished for us. Because when we go, we go clothed in Christ's righteousness, not our filthy rags. Verse 28, Jesus says, I came forth from the Father and then come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. It's almost like now pennies drop for the disciples, almost like they they seem to, to click at this point. This is very interesting, though, what Jesus says here. I came forth from the Father, with whom I existed from, uh, from eternity in glory, and come into the world by my incarnation. I leave the world by my death, and go to the Father by my ascension. This is um, from Adam Clark's commentary, and he says, These four words, or those four little phrases, contain the whole economy of the gospel of man's salvation, and the consummate abridgment of the Christian faith. This is, this is what it's all about. This gave the disciples a key to the whole of our Lord's discourse, and especially to that part, John 16, 16, that has so exceedingly embarrassed them, as appears by John 16, 17, 18. That's the bit that you know, they didn't get what Jesus was saying. So Jesus now says this, and all of a sudden, they seem to understand. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou came from came forth from God. 
this is an incredible declaration on their part. They're, they're starting to understand a little bit about what this whole thing is really all about. And it's, if you like, it's like the penny starting to drop with them. Jesus answered them, do you believe or do you now believe? The disciples have spent three and a half years with Jesus bringing them to this point. And they were nearing the end of this intensive training program that Jesus puts in right at the end for them. Finally, it seems that they understood Jesus' plan to this point. But there was another test to come. Behold, Jesus carries on, the hour comes, yes, is now come, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Jesus obviously making that point that he would never be alone, the Father would be with him. But the the disciples, having got to this declaration of, we believe you are God, they, they, Peter already declared you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. They're now saying that you've come from God, we understand you're going back to God. And all of a sudden, this event is going to occur, they get to Gethsemane and the soldiers arrive and Peter decides he's going to try and take them out one at a time. Again, because they were believing at that time, they were going for a political Empire. That's what they thought. The disciples, if you read through, they were clearly expecting Jesus to set up the kingdom that had been promised and prophesied. Uh, read the beginning of the Gospel of Luke with, with what Zechariah prays when he gets his voice back again. With what Gabriel says to Mary. They were expecting Jesus to come and set up his throne there and then. That's what they were expecting. That's why 600 plus armed guards come out to arrest Jesus. Because they, they were expecting political insurrection. They didn't understand what Jesus' mission was. And Peter decides he's going to go about it. You know, trying to set up this, if I use the phrase, kingdom now. And he ends up chopping somebody's ear off. It's interesting to note that if we go for that kingdom now approach, if we try and establish the kingdom, what we'll end up doing is causing people to lose their hearing. And yes, pun intended. But I do believe that's the case. If we try and go for this kingdom now, trying to build the kingdom on earth, We're going to cause people to lose their hearing because what we end up doing is getting involved in social causes and people become deaf to the gospel. What happened to the disciples? What was it then that is going to cause them to be scattered? Well, it was something they hadn't calculated on. It didn't fit their model. They had this expectation of what was going to happen and what happens next was not what they were expecting. Oswald Chambers makes the comment, Naturally, we are inclined to be so mathematical and calculating that we look upon uncertainty as a bad thing. We imagine that we have to reach some end, but that is not the nature of spiritual life. The nature of spiritual life is that we are certain in our uncertainty. Consequently, we do not make our nests anywhere. I think that's what the disciples have done. They've made their nest, they kind of got comfortable, and all of a sudden what they were expecting is shattered, and they don't know where to go. Oswald carries on, he says, God seems to have a delightful way of upsetting things which we have calculated on without him. We get into places and circumstances he never chose and suddenly they are shaken and we find we've been calculating on them without God. He has not entered in as a living factor. Have we learned the wonderfully practical lesson of not calculating without God? And to take God into all our calculations is the one thing that keeps us from the possibility of worrying. That's wonderful. Let me read that again. To take God into all our calculations is the one thing that keeps us from the possibility of worrying. According to the wisdom of this world, God seems to be haphazard. He is not calculable in this providence. He works in ways we cannot estimate. If we try to work things out in logical ways, we are apt to find that suddenly, 
in the providence of God, a great upheaval comes we had never calculated on. And I think that's exactly what happened to the disciples. But Jesus says, verse 33, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. And what peace it is. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Just to note here the source of this promised tribulation. It's the world. It's really important to make mention of that because some people get very confused with their eschatology, their study of end times, the last things, uh, with this word tribulation. Well, aren't all Christians supposed to go through tribulation? Yes, we experience tribulation, but the source of that tribulation is from the world. As we stand for Christ, as we are light and we are salt, as we produce fruits that Jesus said we would produce, the world doesn't like it, and there'll be tribulation. But it's not the same as the coming time of tribulation that's clearly prophesied in scripture because the source there is the wrath of the lamb now there's a really huge doctrinal issue here because if believers are to be left on earth during that time of tribulation then it means that the blood of the lamb on the cross was not sufficient to forgive us because we're then being judged again and I don't think that's right I I, I think that that which took place on the cross was final because we're told it is finished to tell us die, paid in full. And I don't believe any believer will enter into that time of tribulation to experience the wrath of the Lamb. Now, there will be people that come to know the Lord during that time, and clearly we're told that they're martyred. But we mustn't confuse the tribulation that we will experience on a day-to-day basis with the future time of coming tribulation. There's a, a clear distinction in terms of the source of that tribulation. And Jesus says there, I have overcome the world. And that brings us to the end of this chapter. But in closing, in Revelation 3.21, Jesus, Jesus says there, To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. This is a conditional promise. It's not just something that everybody's going to get to do this. Okay, it's not the right of all saved. It's for those who overcome. Chuck and Nancy's latest book uh, met with a lot of controversy. Whether you agree with all of it or parts of it, certainly underlines the fact that there are a lot of Christians that are living very carnal lives. Doesn't mean they're not saved. Doesn't mean even that they're not bearing fruit. Because my contention is that if you are saved, if you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you will bear fruit. Because that is what Jesus promises in in, uh, John 15. But there are a lot of Christians that are not living seriously. You know, what we're seeing in these these chapters 13 through to um, 16, really, is just laying out that which should be expected of a disciple. We'll uh, summarize it again in chapter 17 to look at this incredible prayer that Jesus prays to the Father for the disciples, acting as our high priest. We'll look at that when we get there.